0: This week is Parsha Vaichi. It's the last Parsha in Genesis, and we're kind of coming together. And we have Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob has all his interactions with his brother and his father-in-law, and then he has to he settles down finally, and the whole saga of Joseph begins with his brothers want to kill him, they send him to Egypt, there's the famine, the whole story, and finally everything, everything seems to come together very nicely at the end of the book, and the Jewish family, they're in Egypt as planned earlier in Genesis and they're about to blossom and flourish into a nation. And the parsha begins with Jacob is, is really old, he's 147 years old, and it's he's ill and he's kind of finishing off his responsibilities, he's tying up all the loose ends. And the first thing that he wants to address is where he's going to be buried. For various reasons, he does not want to be buried in Egypt. He come. He takes Joseph, his son, who is the viceroy of Egypt. He says, "Okay, I want you to swear you're going to bury me in Israel, in the Marat Machpelah, in the cave of the forefathers." Joseph, uh, Joseph swears, and then he brings Menasheh and Ephraim to get uh, to get blessings. So his two sons, Menasheh and Ephraim, to get blessings. They get promoted to being like the sons of Jacob, like Reuven and Shimon, and. Jacob also addresses some of the items that weren't uh, taken care of, uh, most notably the fact that Rachel was not buried in the tomb of the patriarchs. And the central episode of the parsha, chapter forty-nine, is Jacob calls his children uh, before him, and he ca- says, "Okay, I'm going to tell you your. This is my bedtime, my, my uh, deathbed wishes to each one, of, each one of you, and the, de- and the deathbed uh, blessings." Now it's interesting. Rashi tells us that initially Jacob had intended on telling his children what's going to be in the in the end of days, and that didn't work out because he realized, for whatever reason, uh, that uh, the uh, the prophecy was removed from him, and instead he pivoted and started telling them going through the children one by one and giving them blessings. And if you read the blessings, it's it's a little bit strange. It uh, begins with Ruvain, Reuben, Reuben, the oldest son. And he tells him, you're my firstborn, my strength, and my initial vigor, foremost in rank and foremost in power. Okay, so Rashi explains what's going on over here. He's telling him, listen, you're the oldest. And the oldest, you're supposed to get all the goodies, all the benefits, all the plaudits, all the accolades, all the responsibilities. You're the oldest. And you're supposed to be the king. And you're supposed to be the priest. You're supposed to be everything. However, you lost it. Water-like impetuosity? Pachas Kamaim, You cannot be foremost because you mounted your father's bed. You desecrated him who ascended my couch. It's a little bit strange. Jacob is gathering his children. This is the end of his life. And he's going to tell them, your blessing, I'm going to give you everything that I've been withholding my whole life. And Ruven shows up and he doesn't receive a blessing or doesn't apparently seem like he receives a blessing at all. His father says, you were supposed to be the king. I'm taking it away from you. You were supposed to be the priest. You are supposed to be the spiritual and the political leader of the Jewish people. And my blessing to you is, you're not. You're losing all your your stature. It seems very strange that this would be the blessing that he offers Ruvain. Imagine the, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the king of Saudi Arabia. And they have like 85 princes. And the one of them is the crown prince, and he said, Oh, let me give you a blessing. Your blessing is you're being demoted. You're losing your stature. Or, I don't know, the CEO of the big company, he calls over his kid, who is the heir, a parent, and he tells him, I have a blessing for you. You're no longer the man. I'm giving it to your to your brother. It seems very strange. Uh and then Shimon and Levi are lumped together, the next two brothers. And again, it doesn't seem like it's a blessing at all. What does he say? Shimon and Alevi are comrades. They're brothers. Their weaponry is a stolen craft. He tells Shimon and Alevi that they are operating with someone else's craft. Jacob, after all, he is the one who uses reason. He uses his voice. He is the spiritual counterweight to Esau, to Esav. Esav is the one who uses Violence. And Shimon and Levi, they have a penchant for using violence as well. When their sister was kidnapped and was defiled, they went and they slaughtered a whole town. So Jacob is telling his sons, Shimon and Levi, you're operating with stolen craft. You're using the craft of my brother. And I don't want to have any part of your legacy. Don't mention my name. Don't mention my honor. And he's kind of highlighting their misdeeds. And then he tells them, "Accursed is their rage and their wrath. I'm going to separate them amongst Jacob and disperse them amongst Israel. I'm going to make you traveling peddlers. You're not going to be able to unify and you're not going to be able to gang up together because when you do that, when you are comrades, you're a force of destruction. Again, it does not seem like the most wholesome and warm blessing that a father could give their children and Rashi actually says that when Judah hears this he starts backing away what does dad have in store for me but Judy says no you're okay and he gives him a very positive blessing and that continues for the rest of the brothers so if you have 12 12 sons the first 3 they get very sharp very harsh very biting criticism they lose their stature they the 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 Roles that they were supposed to play, that they were destined to play, get pulled away from them. And then the rest of the brothers, they get very nice, lovely blessings. And then the section concludes, in, cha- in verse 28, All these are the tribes of Israel, 12, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each according to his appropriate blessing. The whole section concludes... Jacob gave all 12 of his, of his children, he gave them all lovely, appropriate blessings. And of course, the question is, what is up with the first three? With Reuven, Shimon, Levi, that they're being blessed in a way that we don't want to be blessed. They're, they're having, in front of everyone, all their misdeeds are being outlined. And the question is, what's going on with with this? And I think in this episode, in this story, in this blessing... I think we see maybe one of the core elements of Musar. Maybe even the first, like the first step. If someone were to ascend the, uh, the Musar ladder, and someone, that, well, what's ground zero? What's the first step? I think we find it over here. So the great Musar master, Rabbi Yeruchum Lavavitz. he was incidentally my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe, who I always say he messed up my doodle results. Because whenever you type in Rabbi Wolby, no one gets me. They just get my grandfather. Mm. But he studied studied, uh, under the tutelage of Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, who was the head of the yeshiva in Mir. Mir was one of the, still now is the biggest yeshiva in the world. But before the war in Mir in Poland, uh, that was the premier yeshiva. And he wrote a series of books on Musar and on the Torah. And he asked this question what's the what's the meaning what's the insight behind these very peculiar sounding blessings and he develops an idea, and we all know that every human is a collection of good and bad character. some of us have a tendency to be kind or to be patient or to be a giving. Or to be to have faith; these are inborn traits that we have that were given naturally, and that's the positive side. And on the negative side, you know, the human condition is that we're not perfect. We have imperfections. If we were perfect, we'd be angels. If we'd be angels, there'd be no meaning in life. We wouldn't have Torah. Angels don't need Torah. If you're perfect, what do you need Torah to perfect? So. The idea behind Torah is that we're trying to harness the power of Torah to use it to perfect ourselves. You know, the the term that we hear a lot, Tikkun Olam, fixing the world. That's kind of a a, a national mission of the Jewish people. Like, what do we stand for? We're the chosen people, chosen because we have a mission to perfect the world. Like, that's. You know That's the destiny of the Jewish people. That's what Abraham began so many years ago. And we hope that we could fulfill and continue to strive to reach that vaunted goal, to bring God into the world. And that's fixing the world. But the truth is, each one of us, we're a little world. In fact, the Midrash tells us is that ha'adam, man, mankind, humans, are olam katan. Each one of us is a small world. You save one soul, it's like you save the whole world. Within each one of us is a world. And just like the big world is in need of perfection, the little world is also in need of perfection. That's why we're here. That's why life has meaning. So we're not perfect. And the objective of life is to change that, and to achieve Perfection. And so each one of us, we're a mix. We have some things about us that are very admirable, some aspects of our character and our behavior that really are noteworthy, that really are wonderful. And the reality is that there's other parts of our character that are less admirable and are in our need of being addressed. Uh, for example, everyone has good character. That's an established idea. The Mishnah tells us, Ezehu <laughs> Chacham made Mikola Adam. Who is the wise person? He who studies from every person. So the commentaries tell us what that means is is that to be wise you have to really amass, you have to coalesce all the good character within you. So how do you do that? Every person you meet, you say, okay, this person, by definition, if they're human, they have something good about them. So I want to learn. What's what can I learn from this person, and integrate into my own personal repertoire of character? And if you learn from every person, hello, maybe call Adam. You'll eventually amass them all, and you'll be the chacham. You'll be the wise person who's able to incorporate within you all the good character because you're someone who's trained yourself to study to learn from every person. But this is this is a foundational idea. I think it's. Baseline idea of mussar, but I think broadly speaking, the whole idea of Torah is that we're a collection, we're a mix. You know, I talk, um, I have a talk that I, I give sometimes uh, about love and relationships, and we know there's a mitzvah in the Torah to love your fellow as yourself. It's a verse in Leviticus chapter 19. Ve'ahavta le'rayacha kamocha, and that's not hyperbolic. The Almighty believes that it's fair to ask of me and to ask of every one of us to love every person that we encounter. Well, how do you love every person that you encounter? Some people are good, some people are not good. Or some people are mostly good, or some people are easily lovable. Others make this mitzvah really hard to fulfill. And the answer is, is that the core I, I can change anyone else I can only change myself each one of us we, we think we could change others maybe and that's but that's a mistake we can only change ourselves clearly when the torah is telling us you have to love everyone as you love yourself what it's telling us is you have to change yourself in order to love other people if I could press a switch and make every person that I ever encounter with entirely lovable then maybe it'd be very easy for me to fulfill this mitzvah but we can't. The only person we can change is ourselves. So how do you change yourself to love every other person as yourself? Well, if this foundational principle is true, that every single person in the world has aspects of their character that are noteworthy and admirable, all I need to do is to change the lenses that I use to judge other people. If I train myself Every person I encounter to ask the question, what do they have that I can learn? What is good about their character? To rewire the way I interact with people and say, I'm going to try to extract whatever it is that there is about this person that I could learn from. What is noteworthy and admirable about the person? If I could do that, if I could make that shift in in trying to find the good in other people, by definition... Every person that I'll encounter, I'll say, okay, this person has this character quality that I'd love to have. And this person has that character quality that is really wonderful and sweet and nice. And this third person has this other admirable aspect of their behavior. And suddenly, all the people that you meet are really lovely. And they're really lovely. And naturally, when you see lovely people, you love them. You know, we're wired to see the negative in other people and the positive in ourself. Like we're wired to be self-righteous and to justify our behavior. Whereas other people, when they do something good, it doesn't make as much of an impression as when they do something questionable. That's just the way we're wired. In fact, that is already sourced in ancient Jewish texts. The the Rush, the great initially German commentator on the, on the Talmud who moved to Spain... He was chased out of Germany by the crusaders. So he actually became the rabbi. He was the first time in history that an Ashtonazic rabbi was able to steward a Sephardic community. So he wrote that by default, we're wired to see the negative in other people and the positive in ourselves. To love other people, we have to start trying to prowl and extract the good of their character. You do that, you'll you'll love every person as yourself. Because just like yourself, you're used to by def- by default to find the good. If you just treat them as yourself, you'll love them. But the bottom line here is that everyone has good and bad character. And if we could kind of isolate your mission, your mission as a Jew, your individual individualistic mission, of course, all Jews we have Torah, we have mitzvos, we have. There's a lot of things that we need to do. Kind of all of us. It's the 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 baseline. But an individual, each one of us as an individual, where or what are the parameters of my responsibility as a Jew? it's about making myself as perfect as possible. The Talmud tells us lonitnu mitzvos ella the only reason why we're given mitzvos is to purify ourselves, so thus if I could kind of develop if I could make an image, a picture of all my character, both good and bad I'll be able to visualize what it is that is demanded of me to utilize my good character to fix my bad character and and that is my spiritual mission in in a nutshell if I can do that what's the problem? why is this hard? The reason why it's hard is because we are deluded with respect to how we view ourselves. We're not keenly aware of the good and the bad character that we have operating within us. If I were to ask, what are are your top five positive characteristics that are your spiritual assets? And what are your worst five negative characteristics that are your spiritual impediments? Most people wouldn't know. They would have no idea. They they, they may think they have certain tendencies, but they wouldn't be able to organize a comprehensive, exhaustive list of who they are spiritually. If you're not aware of who you are spiritually, how are you going to be able to address the flaws and fix what you need to fix if you don't even know what it is you need to fix. What's what? A physician. The first thing the physician needs to do is to diagnose the problem. I could throw all kinds of medication, but if they're not targeted to treat the particular malady that is at play, it's not going to matter. First, you want to do it, you first want to target what it is we're trying to do. What happens over here? Ruvain was someone who made a very hasty decision. He, when Rachel died, Jacob, of course, had four wives. And uh, as you might imagine, to manage that, to juggle that, might have have been somewhat of a challenge. So he had a permanent uh, bed in the tent of Rachel. And then he had kind of uh, less permanent or more temporary dwellings in all the other tents of the other wives. And then Rachel dies. And what does he do? He takes his permanent tent and moves, a permanent bed, and moves it into the tent of Bilhah, who was Rachel's handmaiden. And Ruvain, the son of Leah, he's very disappointed with that. His mother, Leah, she's... She's one of the primary wives, and yes, maybe Rachel is the top of the the, the pecking order. But who's next? That should be Leah. So what does he do? He drags the bed, Jacob's bed, out of the tent that the, the tent in which it was uh, located, and put it into his, his mother's tent. And the way the Torah presents this is that the, that he uh, was with Bilah. That's the way the Torah presents it, but. What Jacob is telling him here is, he's telling him, you are someone who you have the characteristic of, you're you're very impetuous, you're reactionary. When something happens, you immediately have a knee-jerk reaction. That is your characteristic, that is your foundational characteristic that you need to address in life. How valuable is it to have a good diagnostician? How valuable is it if someone doesn't know what's wrong? How often do we hear about people who have illnesses and they have to go to continually visit physicians to find out what is wrong? How valuable is it for someone to just be told, this is exactly what's wrong? It's very valuable indeed. Jacob is gathering his children. And he's to give them a blessing. And we read the blessing and it doesn't seem to resonate. This doesn't seem like a blessing at all. But if we think about it, we zoom out a little bit, and we kind of ask the foundational, basic, first principles questions. What is life really about? Uh, what, are they, what's, what are they striving to do? What's the objective? What's the goal? And if the goal is to find out what it is we need to do in life, what is your responsibilities? What are, what are your obligations here? What is the mighty demand of you? And if a central aspect of that is to under, is to fix and address whatever character flaws that you have, and you may have no idea what that even is, to be told with precision by Jacob, the prophet and the father who has been analyzing your behavior since you were a baby, to be told this is it. This is the central hurdle that you need to overcome to succeed in life, that's gold. That's the greatest blessing you'd possibly imagine. How valuable is that? To be told, this is it. This is the central conflict in your life. Now, just on a, take this even a step further. What Rabbi Yerucham says in this essay, he says that Naturally, every single person is endowed by their creator with one characteristic that is entirely perfect, and one characteristic that's entirely flawed. There's one area of your behavior where you're perfect naturally. Unless that gets corrupted, it'll stay like that. And then there is a an opposing, a parallel element of your behavior where you're entirely. It's entirely corrupted it means the that so to speak the negative side is entirely uh uh bad, and this is so to speak the clash of your life. Are you going to embrace and enforce and support your positive your central positive characteristic or are you going to allow it to become corrupted and become weakened and become defiled, so to speak, and you're going to lose? that central good characteristic which is going to enable you to do everything. Oh, this is a deep idea here. What he's saying is that there's overlap in behavior. Every mida, every characteristic, every element of our behavior is linked to every other one. And thus, if all you need to, all you do is preserve the existing good characteristic and not allow it to become corrupted at all, all you need to do is preserve that and then you're in you're on your way to the promised land because when you for example if someone has the characteristic of truth and that's their foundational positive trait and they adhere to it and they are they they don't compromise on it at all that will eventually affect the rest of their entire Repertoire of character, and they'll become completely, completely perfect, which is an interesting idea. But I think just on a more basic level, the first step of Musar, if Musar is about achieving character perfection, about developing ourselves, building ourselves to become perfect people, to fulfill our mission of tikkun olam ourselves then perhaps one of the first steps is to just identify whatever it is that we need to do. Clarify for ourselves what is our mission, what do we need to accomplish? There's a statement from the founder of the modern Muslim movement, Rabbi Israel Salanter, Israel Salanter, 1810 to 1883. Uh, There's a verse that we say in... Uh, every Shabbos, multiple times, Bekamim alay tishmana uznai. When those that want to harm me, when they stand up, when they rise up, my ear will hear, will listen. What does that mean? So he explained this very cleverly. He says, when you hear someone speaking negatively about you, when someone's criticizing you, so the knee-jerk reaction is, is to fight back, is to have a backlash, is to resist, and to repulse it. That's the knee-jerk reaction. Says Rabbi Yisrael, When I hear someone speaking negatively about me, when I hear my detractors, I listen very carefully to what they're saying. Because the people who hate me, are the people who don't like me, they may reveal to me something that's so important for my life. You know, if someone really loves you, they're probably not going to delineate before you all your flaws. Probably not. However, someone who hates you, they might. Says Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, when someone who hates you starts talking about you, you listen very carefully because the information that they may impart might be actually very, very valuable. So I think this is a lesson from our parsha, which is a foundational lesson of that the objective or an important object, objective that we have to have if we're going to pursue a life of achieving self-perfection is to have self-discovery, is to be, is to get a sense and ideally get a comprehensive catalog of our character, both good and bad. And indeed, we could say there's no greater blessing than to be told, presented on a silver platter, what it is that we need to fix. Ruvin's told, they're, you're impetuous. Shim and Levi, what are they told? They're told that they have a certain element of their character where they have a very strong brotherly love. And when that is infringed upon, when someone touches their sister Dina, they go absolutely crazy. And they could slaughter a whole city because their pride, their, their familial pride, was uh, was attacked. Now, I want to take this a step further. Jacob's blessing goes even deeper. And I think Jacob's blessing, again, is guiding us not only in the first step of Musser, of awareness of character, but also on the next step of Musser. What do you do if you know that you have a negative characteristic? Now it's obviously terrifying. There's a reason why people are very scared to think about themselves and to spend time alone without a cell phone. It's very terrifying for people. And it's also people are very uneasy about thinking about their own flaws. But suppose someone really wants to do this. They really wanted to take muster seriously. And they figure out a way, either with Jacob, a prophecy or other ways that we'll try to figure out uh, at the end of the talk here. They know what it is they need to fix. They know what it is that, 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 uh, that is their negative character. What now? So I just want to outline a few of the ideas and then we'll see what Jacob did. So there's a um, there's a Talmud in the book of Shabbos on page 156, all the way at the end. And the Talmud is describing those kids that used to love to dismember uh, daddy lone Remember those kids? Uh, or the kids that are gleeful when they're dissecting the frog in science class. There's certain kids who have a certain penchant. They like blood. The way the Talmud describes it is that someone is born under the astrological sign of Maadim. Someone is born under the influence of Mars. That's what it that's that that's basically how it's translated. It's describing someone who has a penchant for bloodlust. But they have a choice. They can either be a Mohel. Mohel is someone who is able to get their fix of blood in a mitzvah. Or they could be a surgeon, they could be a physician, they could be a butcher, or they could be a thief. They could be a murderer. Now, this idea, I think, is something that that really is broadly applicable. You know, some people, like my, I I get very queasy when there's blood. I'm not one of the, I'm certainly not one of these kids. Uh, The closest I ever got to a, a bris milah was my own children, and even that was very difficult for me. Uh, but everyone has their own thing. Every child, you know, they they are given by the Almighty a certain inborn character traits. And every parent knows, a parent who has two children, they right away could see how different they are, even though they have the same biological uh, roots, but they're just so different. Because that's, it comes from the soul. The soul is what gives people these divergent qualities to them. But what the Talmud's telling us is that even if someone has a negative character, the negative character does not need to be manifested. It does not need to be exhibited in a way that's improper. If someone, they're cruel, and they're going to be cruel, they love blood, find a way to fulfill that in a mitzvah. If someone gets angry... You know, anger is a, the Talmud is the Talmud and all the sources are very harsh on someone who gets anger. It gets angry. For example, Kol Hakoves Kol Mine gehenim It's the Talmud. The Talmud tells us whoever gets angry, all manners of hell and purgatory are going to attack him. It sounds very harsh. And the reason why the, the the deeper meaning is because anger, that's the segue for all kinds of sin and all kinds of misdeeds, and therefore all kinds of punishments. So let's suppose someone is angry, and the Almighty made them as an angry person. And you see that with children, some children have a tendency to get very angry. Why did you do this? Uh, oh, I don't like the way this food is made. This is terrible. And some kids are more mellow, they're more calm. And I think this rule would apply as well. Suppose you Isolate your character. You're, you're an angry person. Okay. That's settled. What now? Let's find a way to channel that towards something constructive. Be angry at ISIS or at Hamas or be angry at the fact that there is, that there's problems in the world, that there's people who need help and they're not being addressed. Find a kosher outlet for an unkosher Characteristic. I know my parents. They, there was one of my brothers. He had a lot of energy. He was like bursting with energy, and then in, he would. He, and he had like a violent streak to him. He had an angry, violent streak to him. So they bought him a punching bag. It's still there, in my parents' house. Punching bag. Let out your energy. Let let out your aggression in a way that you don't have to punch your brothers, your siblings, or you right. Like that's a kosher outlet. And I think. The exact application obviously depends on the circumstances, but the core idea that we find in the Talmud really resonates. Once you understand what is operating, find a way to, to you know, before you even think of fixing it, find a way to channel it in a way that's not harmful or destructive to yourself or those around you. What does Jacob do? He tells Ruvain, Ruvain, you had it all. You were going to be the king. You were going to be the priest. You were going to be on the top of the food chain in the Jewish nation. But you're impetuous. You act quickly. You don't think before you act. So therefore, I'm going to punish you by taking away the stature and the role and the responsibilities that you were destined to have. You're no longer going to be the king. The king's going to be Judah, your brother. You're no longer going to be the priest. The priest is going to be Levi, your other brother. To us, it looks like a horrible demotion. This is not a blessing. This is a curse. That's what we think. But now that we have a little bit more of context, what Jacob is doing here, He is trying to give them a blessing that really relates to their spiritual universe. First he told them, and he isolated for him, his negative character, which in itself is very valuable. The next thing that he did is that he set him up in a way that his life will not constantly come into conflict with his negative character. A king, perhaps the most important characteristic that the king needs to have to fulfill his duties properly is to be deliberate, is to weigh options. If there's a thorny geopolitical crisis and he has a happy trigger finger, what's going to be? How quickly can nuclear war happen? Or how quickly could he kickstart a war? A king who acts before he thinks, he or she thinks, uh, about the situation, the circumstances, and taking into account everything that really is operating, is someone that's likely to bring about devastation to themselves, to their reign, to their monarchy, and to their people. So what Jacob is doing, by pulling away the monarchy from Reuven, is in fact also a blessing, Because he's setting him up for life, for success. If someone has the characteristic of being impetuous, it's critical that they are not the next king. Because that's not the right role for them. Yes, we'd all love to be king. But you know what? If someone is not worthy of being the king, it's better for them and better for everyone else if they're not put into that role. There's a book called The Accidental President. Harry Truman. He was not, he was totally unprepared to be president. When he was meeting Stalin and Churchill for the first time, Potsdam, he was reading, they, they, they specifically took the ship, so he'll have more time to read up on these geopolitical issues, because he had no idea. And uh, thankfully, he turned out to be a great president, but when he met Eisenhower, in Europe, for the first time, he says, he told him, Ike, I'll give you the presidency now. I don't want it. You should be the president, not me. That's what he told him. And it's interesting because he, he, he felt, and it's funny, even his wife felt that he wasn't prepared for the job. Like he had, no one had faith in him. He himself didn't. Uh, because, and we all think that we'd love to be the president or the king, but then you actually have to make decisions that impact the entire world, the entire, entire populace. And think about how much that weighs on your shoulders. Now, I get, like we said, that turned out pretty well. But Ruvain, I would say he should be relieved. He is not going to be forced to be constantly butting heads with his own hamstring, with, a own, with his own characteristic that he just doesn't have. He, he, he's, the Almighty made him impetuous. That's his foundational character trait. And that's something that is almost inflexible. And therefore, Jacob is giving him an additional blessing to evade and avoid and sidestep a potential disaster by him being king, number one. Number two, what does the Kohen need to do? Think about it. The Kohen in the temple... There's a lot of different elements to these sacrifices and to the rituals, and there's so many parts, and everything needs to be done perfectly. And we read on Yom Kippur of how many things have to happen in the very precise order, someone who likes to just act and figure it out later, probably shouldn't be the king, shouldn't be the priest either. So again, we see that the second element that we initially thought was a curse was in fact Another great blessing that Jacob gave Reuven. Uh, Moving on to Shimon and Levi. They're told that their foundational negative characteristic is the fact that they have a tendency to act like a mob. When Shimon and Levi are together, it's a tinderbox. And who knows what could happen. Incidentally, in the previous parsha, we read that Joseph chooses a prisoner, one of the prisoners, of one of his brothers. And which one does he choose? He chooses Shimon. And the commentaries tell us because Shimon and Levi, if they were together, if they were able to collaborate, who knows what they would have done. And therefore he separates the two and they don't have, they don't feed off each other and they don't do something catastrophic. So what does Jacob tell them? He points out the negative characteristic. And it says, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to make you the traveling salesman. I'm going to make you the teachers, the elementary school teachers. You don't have to be in every little town. You're not going to be able to come together and to have tensions flare up and have the possibility of your negative characteristic erupting in a way that's very harmful for you and for those around you. So I think... You know the, the 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 lesson that we see in the parsha is number one: the critical notion of thinking about our lives as a mission, as a responsibility, and more specifically, the responsibility of of fixing ourselves, and the tools to implement that being the Torah. That's number one. Number two: each one of us have a different mission. There's no cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all solution. Yes, there's the Torah, which applies equally to everyone. But within the Torah itself, there's an individualistic role that we each have to fulfill to do our job properly. And to do that, we have to know what it is that is our responsibility. We have to know our positive characteristics. We have to know our negative characteristics. In order to have self-perfection, we first have to have self-discovery. Once you know what it is you need to do, well, there's various ways to engage with that. You could try to channel it, use your negative for good. You could try to avoid it. You could try to make sure you don't live your life in a way that you're constantly going to come into conflict with it. Or you could try to fix it. And obviously the gold standard of Musa and of character development is if someone is actually going to consider to fundamentally address their character and their behavior and who they are as a person on a physiological level, to take what was previously bad, what was previously in need of fixing and actually addressing it and fixing it, that is the absolute apex of character development and ethical refinement and the gold standard of Musser. Now, of course, we're getting. Maybe we're learning too many lessons. Maybe we should just start with 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 one. But just a few ideas of how that might work out. There's my my favorite story. If you listen to my podcast, you know I tell it all the time. It's my favorite story. I don't I don't know a lot of stories, but this one's my favorite about the great Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and the cigarette. And and this really, I think the story typifies the the whole class of of uh, the whole theme of Musr vis a vis actually fixing character. So the story goes that Rabbi Israel Solanta was a smoker. And you say to me, wait, Rabbi, how could a how could a great rabbi, a Musr person, someone who does self control, how could they smoke? Don't they know that smoking's dangerous and harmful? Well the answer is is that, that only came in the 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 Surgeon General's warning on the harmful nature of cigarette smoking, that showed up in 1964. He passed away in 1883. And it was quite common. People would smoke indoors. You see pictures, old pictures, people smoking indoors. It's like, it's it's unbelievable. Anyhow, so he was a smoker. And he is the most significant Musser personality in the last 200 years. So once he woke up in the middle of the night and he really wanted a cigarette. And from what I gather, for a smoker who has a smoking crave, it's a very intense desire. So he wakes up in the middle of the night, everyone's sleeping, and he wants a cigarette, and he doesn't have any. He doesn't have any cigarettes. And the only place that's open in the middle of the night is maybe a kiosk about a mile and a half, two miles down the road. So he's faced with two options. On one hand, he need to roll over, go back to sleep, and get the cigarettes in the morning. That's option one. Alternatively, he could get dressed, bundle up, go for the walk, trek all the way down, buy the cigarettes, and have the cigarettes. Those are the two options. Which do you think he chose? So what does the Muslim Muslim master do with such a dilemma? On one hand, you have option one, go back to sleep. By doing that, you're reinforcing a negative characteristic of being lazy, of not not wanting to walk. It's so middle of the night. It's so dark. It's so late. What a hassle. Let me just go out to sleep. That's, in effect, that is giving in. That's yielding to laziness on one hand. On the other hand, suppose he gets up and gets dressed and goes for the long walk and gets the cigarettes. He's yielding. To another negative characteristic, and that is his desire for cigarettes. As if the desire for cigarettes is manipulating him, is is, is that he's in control. He doesn't have willpower. So either way, he is reinforcing a certain negative character. So what did he what does he do? He gets up, he gets dressed, he makes the walk. He's not lazy. He gets to the kiosk. He doesn't buy the cigarettes. He turns around, he goes home, and he goes back to sleep. And I think this story, it sounds comical to us. Like, why would someone do that? But if you think about it in this lens, like if your objective is to fit your character and you have a certain awareness of the character and how it's operating within you, you recognize that there's two competing options, ostensibly, and each one of them, you pick your poison. Are you going to reinforce your tendency towards laziness or are you going to reinforce your tendency towards compulsion for cigarettes? Either one's is bad. If someone really wants to address, on a fundamental level, the negative character, they have to rewire and reorient how they operate within them by constantly going against those desires. And the idea being, and there's many ways that this could play out. Uh, for example, there's the famous idea of 40 days. You do something in 40 days, you acquire a habit. You actually change. But broadly speaking, by acting in opposition to the desire or to the negative character, you are slowly mitigating it and weakening it, and empowering the other side. And eventually, you fundamentally change it. And, that, and that's that, that's what he's that's what he did. Now, of course, it's very difficult. Like we said, this is the gold standard, but this is at least at least the idea. I think is is powerful. And you, people here might be saying, okay, Rabbi Wolby, it's nice to meet you from Houston. Thanks for coming to Harrisburg. We have a very busy life to live. All this talk about character development. what? Where do I gain from it? What, what's the benefit? Then don't tell me all of my bud. Don't tell me God will be happy with me. Here, how do I benefit? So I want to say, I want to suggest that... Not only is it good for you spiritually, if someone has good character, it's actually good for them in their material world, in the world that we're living in, in their body-centric universe. Moreover, I want to make a bold claim that everything that could go wrong or right in relationships at their root stem from both good and bad character. You know, we have relationships with our colleagues, with our children, of course, with our spouse. And those are the things we cherish most in, in our life. And it's, you don't need to be a statistician to know that in, in this country, in this time in history, a lot of people are having, a lot of relationships have breakdowns. And every single relationship breakdown can be traced back to negative character. Both in if someone's not empathetic or someone doesn't show kindness or someone behaves poorly, if someone gets angry, whatever it is, it could always stem back to an underlying negative character. But wait a minute, Rabbi, I heard on the radio that most relationships break down because of money. Yes, of course, there are external factors that unearth negative character. But at its core, the foundational element that causes marriages and relationships to either flourish or to regress is about character. And if we want our relationships to flourish, it's important for us to invest the time and the effort and the energy in making ourselves and improving ourselves to make us better people and have more ethical, refined character and that will lead us to having uh, better relationships. So I want to recap here what we did. We see Jacob. Jacob has blessings that don't seem to be blessings at all. But the truth is, is that Jacob is actually giving us step one and step two of Musar. Step one, character awareness, just to know what it is that you need to do. Step two, once you know what it is you need to do, you have to grapple with it. You have to address it. And the way he tells his children to address it, avoid it. Make sure that the life that you're living is not constantly evoking the negative character that you have. Of course, ideally, we'd love to fix it. But the first step is to know the character that operates within us. So that's the lesson for the Parsha. And I want to end off on a, a very practical level. Suppose that we actually want to do this. We actually want to fix our character. What now? Where's Jacob? Where's the prophet? Who could just reveal it like he revealed it to to Reuven and Shimon and Levi? Wouldn't that be convenient? Now we don't have prophets. What do we do now? Is there any way today, in the world that we live in, for us to gain a sense of our character and what it is that we need to work on. So I want to give you three suggestions, eh, maybe four suggestions. So I once to a lecture from someone, who will remain unnamed, who said that the reason why people get married—the ultimate reason why people get married—he he asked he asked the group, "Why do people get married?" Well, to produce children. Yeah, you don't need to. You know, you can find there's other ways to do that. And he, every all the answers that people were offering, he rejected. He said, the real reason why you get married is because your spouse will tell you all your flaws. And the reason why this person remains unnamed is because I vehemently disagree with them. But that's a side point. But that's that's an idea. Is that other people could give you feedback. My great-grandfather, Rabbi Abraham Grajinsky, who was a great musar master and the dean of the famed Tzlabotka Yeshiva, the first Musar Yeshiva, he says something very deep. He says that, yes, in antiquity, people would go to the prophet and the prophet would delineate for them what is their positive-negative character. Today, We don't have prophecy, but we have a stand-in for prophecy. We have a replacement for prophecy, and that is suffering. When bad things happen to you, it's a message from God. This is an area that you need to work on. This is an area of focus that you need to address. Last week, we saw the brothers and Joseph, and he's playing with them, and he's toying with them, and he's tormenting them, and they say... This is our fault because of what we did to our brother. And that shows a certain attitude of someone reacting to whatever it is that they're encountering and bringing it inwardly and saying, okay, what lesson does this have for me? A third option, the Baal Shem Tov. He famously said that everything that you encounter is a mirror. The negative character you see in someone else is a reflection of the negative character that you have harbored within you. Which is a pretty astonishing claim. Whatever it is that you see innately in other people is actually a reflection of whatever is operating within you. And thus, just find out, like, what patterns you see amongst your friends in their character, and that, in fact, is your character. And finally, my grandfather of, of blessed memory, Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe, he wrote a book called Alei Shur, two volumes. And in volume one, he has a whole section called Das Atzmenu, which means knowledge of ourself. And what he proposes, it's not any magic bullet or panacea, but he suggests and he outlines an approach to have a careful and painstaking character analysis of ourselves, to spend months to say, okay, every day I'm going to make a list of what character traits I have exhibited during this day. And by doing that over the course of months, you'll be able to see which characteristics are overrepresented and are more foundational and which one of them are only episodic. And I think... That regardless of which angel we want to do, I think just just the recognition, the is just the just this talk, the notion that we should be aware of ca- our character, and just thinking about that, that in itself, that this exercise in itself, I think is worthwhile. In our parsha, in Parshas Vaychi, we learn how critical it is to know who, who who you are and what you are. Indeed, Jacob gave a very valuable blessing. To Ruvein Shimonalevi. It doesn't sound like a blessing, but if we think about it in the context of what life really is about and what we're striving to achieve, indeed, having self knowledge is the very foundation upon which the entire spiritual edifice that we're trying to build is laid.